Imagine a world where men stepped up and answered God's call to reach their full potential. Imagine a world where men put their faith and trust in God unwaveringly and without qualification. Imagine a world where men lived out God's purpose for them in everything they do. It's not my credit to take explores the awe and wonder of how God shows up in the lives of strong, principled Christian men from all walks of life. Get ready to laugh, to cry, and to be transformed. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Slover, faithful husband, loving father, loyal friend, and unapologetically Christian. Welcome to the It's Not My Credit to Take podcast. Jonathan, how are you today, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for taking time to have this conversation. My guest today is Jonathan Drayton. Jonathan is a Christian philosopher and aspiring lawyer. He triple majored in college, focusing on philosophy, history, and political science. While going through college, he knew he loved God, but found it challenging applying his word to everyday life. Upon taking a philosophy class and while continuing learning about God's word, he was finally able to put what he was learning into practice. He allowed God to speak to him in a way that he knew he would know his voice. Jonathan loves Jesus and enjoys unpacking the word of God through several different lenses. Additionally, he has his own biblical podcast called The Truth of the Matter Is with his brother, and they believe Christians should always be ready to evaluate how we can use the word of God to maneuver through life. Jonathan believes that we live our lives in stages and seasons and therefore believes we ought to pursue being more like Jesus Christ every day while having a willingness to learn from others and hear what they have to say. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking time to be on the It's Not My Credit to Take podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Hoping to have a great conversation. I am too, and I, I, I want to dive right in. Now, <laughs> your your journey to the practical application of the Word of God is an interesting one. At least I found it somewhat interesting in that most believers, when they go to college and they take a philosophy class, actually tend to turn away from God, and yet you found it to be just the opposite. Can you can you walk us through that process for you? Yeah, so it began with the passage in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And anytime I read scripture, to kind of capture the character of God, it's important to know that certain words, at least within the English language, don't always necessarily line up with the original language in which the word of God was written in. So the two pieces of context when it comes to scripture and in, in, in terms of, the, of his language is Arabic and Hebrew. And then you go sometimes through the Greek and sometimes in the Latin. And the word fear there, at least within the English language, is not necessarily at least how it was interpreted. It's more of reverence. The word reverence mm. was just to be, a, you know, an honor or respect to someone or something. And in that context, it's the reverence of God is to be given of wisdom. So the acknowledgement of God and his existence in totality and who he is captures at least how we are in pursuit to know and love God appropriately versus fear. Now, if I'm using the philosophical sense, you can say being fearful of God has reasonable application because in the book of Luke, Jesus says, fear not the one who can take the body, but the one who can take the body and the soul. So here you have circumstance, at least 
within a context that if you had a choice of who you should be fearing, fear not the one who can murder you, right? Obviously unjustly, but fear the one who can kill you and take your soul, right? And that has to do with obviously the afterlife, what happens to us, what happens to us afterwards. So some people are much more convinced of living in eternity here and having some evidence of feeling like this is heaven and for us we want to flourish here and also take what we learn here into the afterlife which we hope is eternal life so two different sources of application how you can look at the word fear there so for me proverbs was my first book obviously is the book of wisdom ecclesiastics was another one and reading just the practical aspects of proverbs really brought to my attention a lot more of the morale concepts that we have in our everyday life as we live it is very much similar to the biblical application. So it was reading those things that allowed me to see that God's handiwork, God's hand over our lives is very much in tune with how people are operating, even though they don't necessarily know it. Hmm. That's interesting. How, how would you speak with someone who takes the view that they're living in eternity here versus flourishing here as a way to get to heaven. How, how, did, how would you walk someone through first the distinction between the two with a little bit more depth and then more specifically address someone who says, no, no, I'm, I'm living for eternity here. Heaven is already at hand. Mm, so that's an interesting question. So the first thing I would say is that, we know that the kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and the Holy Spirit, right? Righteousness, joy, peace, and the Holy Spirit. That's at least how it's explained to us in Romans about how we would define what the kingdom of God is. Now, when Jesus came, he didn't just bring the kingdom of God as in something that we hope to strive to get to, but he brought the thought process here. Right. So a lot of people, when they view the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, they're talking about what the potential is in the future, not recognizing and acknowledging that it's also within reach, because that's what we're told in the Gospels. When Jesus said constantly, the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is within reach. He's also given us a way we should maneuver, a way we should operate, a way we should conduct ourselves. Right. And there's no way if you're reading the kingdom of God in this proper context every single time. He can't be talking about a futuristic place. He also mm -hmm. has to be talking about how you conduct yourself here. So when I see someone, or I hear someone speak about heaven here on earth. The question is, are we speaking it from the sense where the way that we choose to live our life here is without responsibility or, or, you know, what's the other term that I would, without responsibility or accountability because I don't see how that would be heaven here on earth. Heaven here on earth speaks more to how you speak life, productivity, success, inspiration into somebody else's life and how it brings about the feelings that you have towards what you're sharing with other people. So I'll give you a prime example. Okay. Here on earth, Matthew 25 speaks about if someone is hungry, give them something to eat. Someone's thirsty, give them something to drink. If someone's in prison, go visit them. If someone needs any source of those help, we are to come here and support them. That's bringing about joy, peace, right? At least within the sense 
of a person who doesn't have and then you're providing them a hand and then they're getting out of life a lot better than what they once were. And we know that in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, it says they will know you are my disciples based upon how you love one another. So someone's experience of love, right? Because I take even further the two most important commandments that we have is to love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So if you're loving your neighbor as yourself and you see your neighbor in need and you're helping him, right? We know in First John it says you're a brother if you see your neighbor in need and you help them. But how can you call yourself or express yourself to say that you're in the love of God and you see a neighbor in need and you don't help them? Then how are you coming to bring them to realize what the love of God actually really is? So the love of God actually is really comes from the sense of defining or bringing love to them that they need. And we know in first John, no one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God's love is made complete in us, right? Another term in first John, it says, let us not love with words or tongue or speech, but in action and in truth. So love really is to give the expense of oneself to benefit the one who is to receive it. So part of bringing the kingdom of God here is expressing that love to people that need it the most. So there's no way you can be experiencing heaven here on earth if some of those applications that I just mentioned about loving, about helping, about bringing someone else to a place where they can experience better, they're not getting that. There's no way heaven on here on earth can be happening if your heart is not transformed, at least to be much more sensitive and responsive to the people who need it the most. So there's no way any of those things are happening because regardless of the fact there are unfortunately a lot of people that don't have a responsive heart to see the things in need and to give help to them. Instead, like we learned in first John, they don't love their brothers and sisters because unfortunately they see them in need and they keep going. They see yeah. them in need and pay them no attention. So to me, if we're talking about heaven here on earth, no one could ever proclaim heaven here on earth is actually happening because if that's the case, then you would be much more selfless instead of selfish. And we have more selfish people than selfless people here. And you don't even have to go through the biblical lens to see that that's happening consistently. Or if it's not that it's like, Hey, I'm giving, but my giving isn't sincere because guess what? I can, I could have a tax write off for that. Right. Mm -hmm. I can, I can show, and we know this this sense of goodness stems from this idea that I'm doing some sort of good in the world. But then Christ addresses that concept, too. He said when the rich young ruler came and knelt before him and he said to him, he said, hey, good teacher, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And he said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God in heaven. Mm -hmm. And we know that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So no one's innocent no one's perfect so we can't even truly understand what that even means and if we're going through the beatitudes it's the same concept the beatitudes is when there's a specific verse that I believe is in chapter five that speaks about the beatitudes it's much more contingent to what we get in hebrews 8 10 or ezekiel 36 26 which speaks about having a responsive heart the only time your heart will be responsive is if Christ changes your heart. So you have a lot of people that are doing good outwardly, but within their heart, there's something not right. 
right? Yeah. The outward appearances of what we do seem to be good, but the struggle within is dark. There's darkness in, there's no light there. Most more people are concerned with the outside of the cup instead of the inside of the cup. So yeah, there's, I would say there's no way <laughs> that heaven you know, here on earth can ever be grasped when we have all these things going on in this lack of concern for your brother or sister. So I want to touch on two points related to what you just said. The first is, I, it occurs to me that in, in some ways, though, I need to unmemorize myself or unmemorize what I learned earlier in life, where I was basically taught that God is, is out there. God is exclusively external from us, and yet it seems antithetical to believe that because otherwise that renders the Holy Spirit somewhat moot. And so when we, when we accept Christ and we have Holy Spirit, there is a part of us that is connected internally. Taking that a little bit further with what you had just said, is that if we then take that, quote, connection, rather than having it, you know, sort of this, this you know, external judge that you know, lays out punishment, if we actually really connect with Holy Spirit, and then we don't subsequently treat our brothers justly or fairly or give to them, that would, that would seem to sort of, gosh, what, I don't know what the best way of saying that is, that, that would seem to be hypocritical to the idea of having the Holy Spirit in, in us in the first place. Do you, do you agree with that, or how do you internalize that idea? So I think... The way I would internalize it, okay, so there's two, you know, there's a quite to the practice. So let me say it like this too. Yeah. <laughs> right. The message of the gospel is viewed in two ways. And this happens in different circles of denominations. Most people believe in the personal transformation. And once the personal transformation happens, some believe that they don't have to be concerned with what's going on outwardly, mm. just within themselves. Yep. Then there's the public reform or community reform, which means the gifts, talents, and abilities that you have, some will say it's much more reserved within the church context or what I would, cons I would call the, the church context, but there's a specific term, corporate worship. So corporate worship is a multitude of people, right? Yep. Others will say, let my gifts go out. So our quote here, Matthew 5, where it says, let your light shine before others so that they, they may also glorify your Father in heaven. That isn't always within the context of church. That's yep. also within the context of other places that you go. Because if you're letting your light shine before others, that might be in a business setting, that might be in a work environment, that might be in places where it's darkness and the only light that shines is you. So the public or communal reform is now allowing who you are in Christ to then rub off on others outside of the, con the church context. So you have two different people where two different point of views where some people say, once I am saved, I should only be concerned with myself. Hmm. And you have others that say, once I am saved, I need to do much more, right? And there's portions of scripture that support both point of views, right? And I'm here to say that, why can't it be both? Why can't you help yourself? 
And why can't you let others see what Christ is all about? Because unfortunately, I think some people view the saving or God saving them in one way. But I think there's multitudes of where you can find God in different settings. And if it was only limited to the church, then I would think God will be anti-pomorphizing himself, where he's only limiting his capacity or where he can go to save somebody. Interesting. Another thing is this too, right? The church itself, we learn from Paul, says the church is within. Now, some people view the church as just within a corporate confinance, right? But Christ changed the individual so that the individual can change the society, right? Because remember, throughout the Old Testament, we learned that everything was under the confinance of the, the building, and God turned around and said, I'm not going to just change the building. I'm going to change the person who could then impact this community or the environment that he walks in. That gives God a, a lot more further perspective to operate, right? And the thing is, when we look at church, it wasn't the building anymore. Once we get into Acts, it was people gathering in homes. So now God says, I no longer will be limited to just a building. I will be living within the hearts of individuals, right? And I think most importantly, the individual has that opportunity to speak life into people, into different circumstances and different predicaments that isn't contrary to the, the traditional aspect of how we experience God. So I believe that's how I would answer both questions in regards to what wow. you're asking. Yeah. <laughs> It's an it's an interesting way to look at it because you had reference it's, it's really not an either or it's a both and yes right and one of the things that is at least how I've been able to differentiate your religion versus spirituality and that you know can get into a mind numbing debate but the the religion side has, has has all of these formal rules and structures and and then you start you know piecemealing it based on certain denominations. And it seems like division or a lack of unity is baked into that cake versus where spirituality, it's our individual relationship with Jesus. And there's really no guidebook on how we go about getting there as long as we get there. Is that a, a, a fair assessment or how would you build on that idea? Yeah. So I like what you're saying because I look at it too this way, right? There are some people that come to know Christ and legalism is what keeps them there. And, right. and what I mean is, so Paul talks about, you know, this idea of not convicting a brother or sister or, so there are some people where causing a brother to stumble comes as a result of not knowing how rooted they are in their faith. And if you're aware of the fact that these are issues and troubles that a person may have, then you don't want to coach them or lead them into that place where they're turned back, right? Paul also mentions in Romans about people being at different levels of their faith, right? Some people are able to eat only vegetables. Other people are able to eat meat. Some can eat both, right? So when you're walking in this walk with Christ, you're going to come across people that are, diff are in different camps on how they've met Christ. Because we don't know how serious a person 
and what they have went through to cause them to now revert something that's a little bit more more of a religious aspect. And what I mean is there are some people that have been tampering and messing with the spiritual aspects of realities outside of the Christian context, right? Whether it's tarot cards, whether it's palm reading, those different avenues open up a level of experience of torment. And then when they come back to Christ, all they know is that the strict realities of religion help them. Whereas there are other people that have the fortitude and the control to be able to maneuver and live life with John what Jesus says in John 10, 10, I come that you may have life and have it abundantly, which is freedom, freely, right? So there are some who need the restrictions as a result to how they came to Christ. And there are some that can handle the freedom. And then they're practicing what we learn in Galatians 5, 30. Don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. So you start to realize that these different avenues of how a person comes to Christ is really based upon what they can handle and what they can't handle. Mm -hmm. And you don't tend to learn that until you start to understand what they were dealing with and how they were brought out and why they need that structure in the first place. And that you have some who have come to Christ and don't have any of those experiences that they have. And yet they're able to, they're able to manage and have their walk with Christ where they can have freedom and can also manage it. So, you start to realize when you meet other people and their exposure to God is not always aligned, but who we are and how we're walking about and how we're doing things. It may be different, but it's the same God. And therefore you respect why this person needs what they need and the space that they have. So I've, I've had to learn that once I've ran into some that expressed that and he said, man, if I don't do this, then this is what my reality is. And then others may express, well, I've been able to do X, Y, and Z, and it doesn't bother me, and it doesn't taint me, and it doesn't make me go back to where it is. So there's a lot of interesting room there when it comes to the different experiences people have and what Christ has been able to do for them. That is pretty interesting. Yeah, that's so good. I, I appreciate you un unpacking that. That definitely helps it clarify it in my mind you know the religion serving really as a framework or structure that some people need while others have a little bit more uh, more free flow you know um, you know within their relationship with Christ I'm curious how did you come to Christ and how do you experience mm -hmm. God's love mm -hmm. okay so those are very two questions so how I came to Christ was, my exposure to how I saw God operating was through the super spirit, the, the spiritual means, the supernatural means. But I didn't quite necessarily understand it because it wasn't happening to me. So at first in my beginning thought process was that, why am I not experiencing what everybody else is experiencing? And then someone expressed to me that, God has a way of communicating to everybody differently. And sometimes you're going to run across people that share that same experience that you have. So I knew God was real. I just haven't understood how it would be much real to me yet. And it actually wasn't until I took the philosophy course that I had and it gave me a basic understanding on how the reason 
and how to be a critical thinker. And then I took that and I said, you know what? I've read so much information and I found a loophole that I found in every philosophical work that I was looking at. And that was this belief that everything that's been discussed is open for dialogue and it was never absolute. And to me, anytime that to me, that that premise is very conflictual, like it's conflict, because if everything is open for discussion and there's nothing in written in stone or final, then how can we ever go truly with truth unless everybody's discovery is open to being accepted? And that didn't make any sense to me. The theory and idea would sound very logical, but on a basis for what everyone would have to agree with and roll with doesn't make any sense. So I took the critical thinking aspect and I brought it back to going to read the word of God. And I saw a lot of the philosophical conversations that were, that I've read about were rooted in scripture all throughout. Hmm. And I began to see that God has in a lot of cases, a very practical means of expressing and sharing himself with us. And is very logical based. And in other cases, the supernatural aspect steps in and it has to step in because us as human beings, we all have limits. And that's the beautiful thing about God is that what he calls for the Christian to do is never go on the offense. But instead, we're constantly, we're constant individuals that are in the means of always defending, 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 defending. If we think about the armor of God. Nothing on the armor of God says anything about attacking. Not a single thing, right? The shield of faith, the helmet of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, the feet that brings about the gospel of peace. All of those things are more of armor. And in that particular scripture in Ephesians, it tells you to hold up until you can't hold anymore, which speaks more to trusting in God. And in Romans, we get the same concept. It says revenge is not your, not yours, but it is the Lord's. So it speaks more to trusting and believing in God and allowing him to do the rest while you are supposed to stand and trust and believe in him. So there's a lot of practical aspects about God and the actions and what we're asked to do. And it just makes much more sense, much more logically when you take sometimes out of its context and you apply it practically. And I see that throughout the scriptures. There's a lot more there when it comes to us trusting in God. And then we have numerous testimonies of people doing that and success coming. So once I got into that and I understood that and I started peeling back and seeing scripture through you know, a philosophical lens, a psychological lens, a psychotic, uh, a sociological lens, a political lens, I started to see that, yes, there are religious aspects to the scripture, which I am totally within it and I agreement with. But then there are these other aspects, too, that we've all gone to school and study. And I see God moving and operating in those as well. Hmm. So it became very clear to me that at the end, I'm a spiritual person in a sense that I'm part spirit, but also part fleshly. And some of the things that I have to deal with in regards to sin is a real thing, right? If anyone says they haven't been saved and they never sinned, 
I, I wouldn't I wouldn't believe them. There's something wrong there. Right. So you start to see everything that God is doing for us. He's warning us. He's providing us insight. He's provided us example. Right. Well, if we're looking in Corinthians and we're looking in Acts. He says these things are written for your benefit, for your understanding. Or we'll go to Corinthians 10. We're looking at 30. He's talking about all the things that have happened. There's none of the things that have happened that haven't been or haven't been presented to Christians before you, right? I'm using Christians because those are obviously those that followed in God or in Christ, which is simultaneously one and the same. But you see that all these things were written down so that once you read it and you see it and you see the mistakes made, it's very reasonable to see that no one's perfect. No one lived a complete blameless life. Flaws and decisions were made, but that didn't stop God from using and helping and being involved. And to me, it's just very reasonable where I got to a place where I say, you know what? This addressing of sin, this addressing of all the things we're going to deal with on this side of eternity. God has mapped this out so beautifully to me. It's kind of hard to view and look at all these things and to be unconvinced that he steps in when he has to, and we don't have anything left, but he also gives us practical aspects of how we should live our life with what's been written for us to go back and return to and remind ourselves of. Yeah. I like how you touched on the idea of uh, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Yeah, I love that. I love that message, especially having a burgeoning ministry of my own because I'm mm-hmm. not qualified to do any of it. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll we'll see how it goes because it, it, if if it achieves any measure of success, and I don't I'm I don't I don't know what success is, so air quote mm-hmm. success, uh, it's not by my doing at all. I do want to go back to what you had you had mentioned. You said. Um, communicating, God communicating to us through supernatural means. What Mm -hmm. did you mean specifically about that? And then what would Mm -hmm. you say to believers that say, hey, you know what? That's really not a thing. God doesn't do Mm -hmm. it that way. And why should I, why should I even buy into it? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I gave you a great example of what I mean by God communicating to us through supernatural means. I so I'll give I'll give you a reference of scripture and then I'll give you like a practical application for something, right? Yep. So uh, a portion of scripture that I can think about is Second Kings chapter two, where there's a woman at the time who I think it's maybe be, maybe chapter four. So Second Kings chapter two verse or chapter Second Kings chapter four because I'm talking about Second Kings, First Kings, Second Kings, and it speaks about a woman whose children are getting ready to be sold into slavery as a result of the debt of her husband who passed away. Hmm. And in that moment, she encounters Elijah and she expresses to Elijah, Hey, this is what I'm dealing with right now. And he said, Hey, you have the answer, right? And this is me paraphrasing. So you know what he says? He says, go into your home and see what a value is there. And she finds a bottle of olive oil. So then he tells her, hey, go and find every single jar that you can find, even the jars within the community. She does that. The blessing of the olive oil pours into every jar that she can have, which tells you that as long as there was a jar, then the blessing continued to pour. Mm -hmm. To the degree that she was able to pay the fee 
so that her children wouldn't be sold into slavery. And then she can ultimately live off of what she had. And that teaches you two things. One, when we enter, so I put this under the umbrella of how we measuring change when it comes to our walk in Christ, our walk in God, right? Or as I walk in as believers. In that context, it tells me that when chaos happens, there's something there that God is ready to bless. You just have to identify it. Hmm. And she thought she didn't have anything. And she had it there the whole entire time. But she needed to enter into that place of chaotic experience to see that God was there the whole entire time. Right. And I'll give you a much more recent answer. So that's Old Testament. Here's New Testament. When Jesus was in the boat with the disciples and the storm came, they was concerned. Like, what are we going to do? Right. They got Christ in the boat resting. So they go wake him up. And he says, he says to the, the sea, be still. And it tells you that when moments are happening, you got to remember who's with you. Christ is with you. He knows. He's aware. Right. Don't panic. Don't worry. Right. He says by worrying, you can't out, add a single hour to your life. Right. That's right. So mm -hmm. we have to be mindful and, and recognizing that in the hardships that we're going through, God sees how someone's treating you. God sees the moment that you're in. And yet in seeing that, there's some sort of relief that's going to be sent. So I'll give you my personal example. There's been times and periods in my life where financially there are moments and times when I went to school and my car has broken down. And that's like the most embarrassing moment if it's ever happened to you. And you're like, what am I going to do? And you'll see that God is in the midst of your situation because you'll get favor in those moments. Like I've had car breakdown. The guy, the AAA driver who had my car, rather than charging me the full amount, he shorted me. There's been times he didn't charge me at all. He turned the thing off. So I see God's hand in it because God is touching that person's heart to be sensitive to my predicament. And I'm not going to say it's going to happen perfectly like that, but you're going to get a break somewhere, which means God sees it. He's aware of it. He knows what's going on. And I say supernatural because you don't know this person. This person doesn't know you, but God can use the person that's most close to you to allow you to see that he is very much aware of what you're dealing with. He knows that this this is a tough situation. He's not going to completely get get the whole situation thrown out, like get rid of it, but he's going to show you that he's there. And you'll see it if you're really paying attention to how you go through your go about your day. There are little instances and periods where people catch, you know, give you breaks. You know, maybe somebody buys you lunch. Maybe, maybe somebody smiles at you. Maybe someone said God loves you. These are little pieces of evidence that when you're going through your day and you're living your life, that God is there. And, yeah. and that will tie me into answer your question about how do you experience God's love? I look at two passages about how to experience God's love. I look at the passage in Judges with Gideon. And Gideon is complaining to God about how all these things are happening to his tribe. And what do you want me to do? And what am I capable of doing? And then God turns around and tells him, am I not sending you? So a lot of times the gifts, talents and skills that individuals have, God uses you, an instrument of righteousness, to enter into that environment and to change the structure of it. 
but you don't realize that he's using you, right? And it's the same thing if you read Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 5. He says there was once a man named John, right? And we know individuals. God uses flawed individuals to send and to correct and to address problems that we're dealing with on a regular basis. So when I say supernatural experiences, I'm saying some people have the answers to the problems that you're dealing with. You just have to allow God to practically send them in there to address them. And you'll be surprised. You might be one of those fixers. Like we all have gifts and talents of some sort, and you'd be surprised how much uplifting God's using you to solve them. Sometimes supernaturally happens, and sometimes doctors, physicians, psychologists, God's using them too, right? God has his hand in human history, and it doesn't always have to be seen through the supernatural means. Sometimes it's very practical. If you just follow this step, or this program that God instilled in that person to create, you'll see that it, that issue will resolve. It doesn't always have to be a supernatural prayer. It doesn't always have to be God stepping in. I'll tell you one instance that I believe God stepped in. There was a story, I don't know, about a month ago, where you had these children that were stuck in the jungle for 40 days, and they somehow survived. You don't think God had anything to do with that, right? Yeah. There, there's no, there, that in that, in that predicament, I believe, Moments like that, God will step in because there's no other means to. But other means where if you're just doing the right things and sticking to it, I believe God will certainly show you how that happens. And I and I deal with that all the time with my study. I might look at something and I don't get it. And I'm like, how am I going to get this? And then I'll pray about it and I'll come back to it maybe a week or a couple of days. And all of a sudden I understood it. Maybe I wasn't there was something I wasn't seeing then. Maybe the sun I didn't get. Maybe my mind was clouded. Maybe the obvious wasn't there. And then before you know it, you come back and all of a sudden you got it and you're happy, and you're content, and you're satisfied. So that's what I mean about God showing up and and God being there. Either do a supernatural mean where there's nothing that anyone can do which is why we pray to elevate our mind and trust that God knows us best and whatever the outcome is going to be, he's the one that's gearing that ship. And then there's other times where God is like, Hey, I'm a God of process. There's a process that has to happen, whether mm -hmm. it's you, like, I'm not going to bless you if you don't got no jars So go get the jars. Right. right. Or mm -hmm. the man that was blind and he spit into the dirt to allow him to see the passage said it was a process. It didn't say, Oh yeah, here you go. No, sometimes God and what he's doing, there's a process to it. That's the natural order of things. Christ's entrance into as a child and developing and growing and ultimately being who he was. There was a process to it. Just like us, we go through a process. So God is very strategic and very practical, while also he can be very uh, supernatural and obviously doing things when the situation calls for it. So that's what yeah. I would say. Um, as, as we get to the end of this conversation, I, I have a two part question for you. Okay. The first is, well, let me preface this question by saying it, it's clear your, your love for God. It, it's clear you are extraordinarily knowledgeable about scripture and the application of scripture. That said, has your faith in God ever wavered? 
And then the second part of the question is, if you came across someone today who is wavering in their faith, what would be the single starting point you would direct them toward to rekindle that faith? Okay. So the answer to the first question, my faith wavered when I didn't read anything about God. Hmm. Like the most important thing I think Satan can do is if he wants you to lack trust in God, here's the thing. We know faith is the substance of things hopeful, the evidence of things not seen. But I also believe faith is a reason trust, right? I need reasons to trust God. And some may say it's about evidence, but I think it's more to long, along the lines of experiencing God and him revealing himself to me. And the way he reveals himself to me is through scripture, where I can find those things, right? Mm -hmm. And because I didn't read God's word, I, I came up with this concept where it's like fill up your jar. So when I would read scriptures that support and strengthen me, I would write them down consistently. And those scriptures would represent my anchor and how much I should trust God. If I don't have anything, I I'll give you the scenarios. If I all of a sudden had entered into a coma and yet was still in touch with the reality of everything going on and I needed something to continuously get me through until I got out of the coma, and let's say I'm 50 years old and I spent my entire life reading the word of God. Guess what? I have a lot of source of information to get me through. But if I don't read God's word, then how is he going to motivate me, encourage me? He has nothing to pull. Right. The Holy Spirit's job is to remind you of what you already read. Mm -hmm. And if the Holy Spirit is there, but you have nothing there. How is he going to pull to remind you of what you need to know in order to continuously trust him? It's a great right. Point. So a lot of people who don't read scripture, they don't see that the word of God and these things were written to help strengthen you in these tests and in these trials. And if you don't, if you're not recognizing or you don't know that you have to constantly pour into your relationship to have a strong relationship, then the relationship doesn't stand a chance. Just like in marriage, it's about putting the time in, even though I know I'm not in a marriage right now. You're so you're you're get ready, brother. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Right. You're, you're being convinced of your relationship and what you and that person built has to go over a period of time of them consistently showing you why they are trustable for you. Right. But if you don't have any of that, just like in a court situation and they put two people in one room, you're going to turn on each other because you don't have nothing to say. Oh, this person's not going to do it. The, the phrase God loves me is not enough. Not with the devil. Right. Who's roaring, along, roaring like a roaring lion looking to who you may devour and giving him a foothold to come through. He's been he's an expert at this for years in deceiving and manipulating and disguising himself as an angel, like convincing you that just supernatural experiences is all that's reliable when it got when it comes to God. And that's where people fall flat on their face, mm. where the supernatural experience is not enough to sustain your faith in God over a long period of time. Like that to me would never work.
right? Which is why we need both, which is why you can have your supernatural experience, but you have the scriptures that support it, right? We know in part, we testify in part, but we need both to balance out what it is. So what I would say is for the person that's looking at their, their situation and uh, having an issue trusting God, there's two passages that, that I think about. I think about Matthew 7, 7 in the NLT. It says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, right? And it says, door will be open. But the point is, is that you don't give up. It's a continuation process. If you give up by the first sight, then you don't really want it. I think all things in life are reserved to those who really want it. And if you're not fighting for what you want and you're giving up so easily, then I don't think any you can never be convinced. And the other passage is Galatians 6, 9. It says, don't become weary in doing good for you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. So when I'm talking about, I brought up earlier about testing your ability to see how your life has changed is realizing that the the process of farming takes time. But hey, what does Jesus say? All you need is an ounce of faith, a, a, a set. What did he say? A seed, a mustard, seed. Seed, a mustard seed, right? And guess right. how? Guess what it says about a mustard seed? It grows into one of the biggest trees ever, right? Because it says the more the process of farming, the more you pour into it, the more you 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 take care of it, the more it grows. And we don't ever put a limit on how tall a tree can grow. The answer is the tree can grow as tall as it wants to. Right. So if you're not doing these things and this is we know that God made it clear, he said that the only way to please him is in faith. You're not going to please him in reasoning. You're not going to please him in any of those aspects, because we know that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. So if you think uh, we're the people out there who think that by reasoning, you're going to be able to reason with God. It's just not going to happen. You can try. You think it is, but it's not going to happen. We, that's the one thing he gave us when he told us in Isaiah, come, let us reason together. But your reasoning in regards to knowing that God has his hand in human history and has always been there. Trust me, he's got receipts. <laughs> yeah. He's got receipts upon receipts. So uh, this little here and there where you're concerned I think I should say this too. When it comes to our trust and faith in God, the most important thing is it needs to be a conviction, not a preference. And I'll give you a historical reference. There's a court case in 1972 with Jonas Yoder versus the state of Wisconsin. So it's 1972, Jonas Yoder versus the state of Wisconsin. And in this court case, it was about his conviction and belief on how he was raising his children. And it was because of this court case. Now, all belief systems are protected under the United States because of that. Right. And you don't realize how much convicted you are in something unless your 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 life is on the line or your way of living is in jeopardize. Right. And when it comes to our faith, the question is. Is it going to be a conviction or a preference? And you see that in the Gospels where the young man that Jesus helped, they put pressure on his parents. And he refused. He actually challenged the chief priests and the Pharisees and they kicked him out. And then when Jesus found him and found that he didn't waver, 
right? His faith stood the test of the fire. He worshiped God. He worshiped Christ in that moment, right? So you have to see that when it comes to our faith, we're going to be put under pressure, right? We're going to be challenged. And if you're already given up, then you're not realizing that God is using these moments and these tests to strengthen your faith. And the only way your faith is going to get strengthened is if tests come. There's no way that you're going to live life, say you have faith in God and tests aren't going to come. Right. Yeah. Like that's part of the process of your development in that. And that's why he told us, consider it pure joy, accountable joy. When you face the trials of the tribulations to know that the testing of your faith will produce perseverance, let perseverance finish his work. So you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If anyone lacks anything, let them ask God who gives generously without finding fault. And I love to add the Romans chapter five, verse three through five. He says, rejoice in your suffering because suffering is going to produce character. So that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank thank you so much for your, your wisdom. It belies your years. Absolutely does. Uh, and if I can offer a bit, uh, one unsolicited suggestion. Sure. Is that, and it, this is just from me, you know, making mistakes and stepping in it far too often. Is that when you do end up getting married, make sure God is the focal point of the marriage. <laughs> Um, I'm hoping from, uh, that's take, the goal. <laughs> right, take it, take it from someone who who jacked that up way too often. So, um, before we wrap, would you mind closing us out in prayer? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, Heavenly Father, Lord, in the name of Jesus, we want to thank you so much for this opportunity to bring us together. Lord, you said anytime two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst. So, Lord, I pray that for all those who are listening that what's been spoken of today doesn't fall on deaf ears, but rather let it penetrate even those whose hearts are hardened so they can see that no matter how far gone a person thinks that they are, they always have opportunity to come back to Christ, right? No matter how far we think no one loves us, God loves us, right? He told us in John 3, 16, that he loved us so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, the contingent there is to believe in you, Lord. And one of the ways we know that believing in you is reading your word. It's foundational. It's important that we rely on you and nothing else. He told us in Romans 12, 2, let us not. Let us not be conformed to the patterns of this world. We'll be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So let us allow your word to renew our mind, to help us turn away from habits that we've started that are hard to stop. Lord, we know that you're a God of process, and we know that when sin increases, grace increases all the more. We understand that the things we don't want to do are the things we keep on doing, the things we do want to do are the things, unfortunately, at times we don't do. But, Lord, we know that you're a God who's a God of process, and therefore you'll be with us to the very end when it comes to our development, our growth. Lord, I pray that when it comes to our faith, let us add to it goodness and to goodness, knowledge and to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance and to perseverance, godliness and to godliness, mutual affection and to mutual affection and love. 
Let us love one another, those whose faith hasn't gotten to the place that it could be. But Lord, the most important thing is let us shelter and comfort one another in these moments and times. More importantly, Lord, let us always remember that you would never leave us nor forsake us and that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, I pray that these words that we've spoken today, let it sit on the conscience of those who are curious. And all it takes is for us to be curious about you, for you to reel us in so that we can see that you're not just a God who loves from a distance that some may believe or think in other belief systems, but you're a God that is not far. You're a God that's within reach and you're a God that is accessible whenever you need it. Prayer is an opportunity for us to discuss and speak to you about the things that most concern us and bother us. You said castle concerns upon you because what you care about most is that you want us to be within peace, to give us rest when we need it the most. So I pray those and that we can pray for their fans, their family members and friends who are struggling as well. We know that the power of prayer is powerful, right? And we know that speaking to you about all concerns that you hear us. And if we know that you hear us, we know that we act, we have what we ask for. So let us continue to place our faith in you and to trust in you because we know that by doing that, we have what we ask for. So Lord, we say these things with surety, confidence, and without any doubt, because you know by doubting, we can't get what we ask for. We say these things, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking time and sharing your story and testimony. We really appreciate it. It was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. God bless. You can contact the show at it's not my credit to take.com. We'd love to hear from you. God bless.